the culture of patronage is deeply embedded in Illinois politics. Uh, remember that every manager who's come up through the system and is now managing a city or state agency, almost every one of them has come up through the patronage system. They are children of the patronage system. They got there by patronage. They support patronage. And for them, the cultural shift is enormous. Hello, welcome to the Clubcast. I'm Alex Nitkin. I will be your host this week. If you follow Chicago politics or history at all, you've probably heard the name Shackman. Maybe you've heard of the Shackman Decree or Shackman Rules, Shackman Reforms. They all have to do with this lawsuit that was filed by a young lawyer named Michael Shackman way back in 1969 that was basically trying to break up Chicago's legendary system of patronage, that is, politicians rewarding their political supporters by giving them government jobs. But that lawsuit, called Shackman v. Democratic Organization of Cook County, is still going on today, 52 years later, and it has totally reshaped the way that Chicago, Cook County, and Illinois government work and who they work for. And here's the thing, Michael Shackman, the original plaintiff in that case, he is very much still around. He is a practicing attorney with the law firm Miller, Shackman, Levine, and Feldman. He is still directly involved in this lawsuit, and he is the guest on our podcast today. Now, the first half of this episode or so is basically a history lesson, the likes of which you are not going to hear from anyone else, on how Chicago's infamous machine patronage system worked at its peak in the mid-20th century, how Shackman, who was an independent candidate for office at the time, put together this lawsuit as a kind of legal experiment with some of his law school friends, and how it grew and developed and got stronger and more influential over the course of the decades until it built this really powerful legal wall that we now see between politics and government in the area. And at one point, it even targeted a Republican-controlled patronage machine system in DuPage County, which I did not know. We're also going to talk about the offices that are still operating under the legal oversight of this Shackman federal consent decree, including, as of just last year, Cook County Clerk Karen Yarborough's office, and what it's going to take to end this half-century-long legal crusade against some of the most powerful people in the state. So here is my interview with attorney Michael Shackman. Michael Shackman, welcome to the Clydecast. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So I want to start by locating us back in the Chicago of 1969. Um, so Richard J. Daly has been mayor for like 15 years at this point. The city is still sort of reeling from the 68 Democratic Convention, the King assassination. This is the city that is depicted in the movie Judas and the Black Messiah that came out recently. Um, I want to talk specifically about how Chicago city government functioned at that moment in time, and particularly sort of the interplay between the political apparatus and the government apparatus in the late 60s? Well, it was a uh, one-party state, if I could put it that way. If you were not a member of the uh, regular democratic organization, or otherwise affiliated with what was known as the regular democratic organization, an organization headed by Mayor Daley, who was mayor, but he was also chairman of the Democratic Party of Cook County, which gave him the power to become mayor. If you weren't a member of the Democratic Organization of Cook County, you really weren't uh, on the political map in Chicago. Uh, there were 50, as there are today, 50 aldermen. There were uh, two who were not uh, regular Democratic, as we called them, machine uh, candidates uh, and aldermen. Those were Len Dupre in the Fifth Ward, because the Fifth Ward had an independent voting tradition, and a man named Holan, who was a Republican from the North Side in a ward that preserved enough Republican voters to elect a, a Republican alderman. All the rest were members of the regular Democratic organization, and all the rest were part of the Democratic patronage system, which operated on the basis of about 
40,000 state and county jobs, uh, laborers, elevator operators, good and, and other jobs, engineers and technicians, uh, all of whom required political sponsorship to get their job. And the mechanics were pretty straightforward. If you wanted a government job, you went to your local political leader, who was typically the ward committeeman. In the suburbs, it was the township committeeman. Uh, and you said, I'd like to get a government job. And he would see what jobs had been allocated to him. And uh, Mayor Daly, through a patronage office he ran in the Bismarck Hotel, and through a man who administered patronage for him full time, Tom Donovan, um, would allocate jobs to committeemen based on how well they performed at the elections. And the committeeman could then say to a job applicant, I've got a job on the back of a garbage truck, or I've got a job at a, a technical position, and uh, I'll make it available to you. The deal is you'll pay X dollars per month as dues to the democratic organization of the X ward. And when election time comes, I'll need you out the primaries, passing petitions. I'll need you there on election day, getting out the vote. And in return for that, uh, I'll help you with your employment if you need help because you're having a hard time at work. The boss is giving you trouble. You want more time off. If you do your job for me, I'll do my job for you. That's how the patronage system works. This is a direct quid pro quo we're talking about, a government job in return for political work. Political work and money. Uh, the two went together. Uh, what the result was that with 40,000 people working for the city and the county, uh, the Democratic Organization of Cook County had at its disposal a vast army of patronage workers for election day work and work in advance of the election, canvassing the, the neighborhoods. And it also had a, a, a tremendous war chest because this was effectively a tax imposed upon the uh, public employees to get and keep their jobs. So let's talk about where you came to fit in in all this. Again, 1969, you are at this point a young attorney a couple years out of law school, right? And you were um, trying to become a delegate at the 1970. Illinois Constitutional Convention? Right. Well, my interest in politics began a little earlier. Uh, I was living in the Fifth Ward, as I do today. I still live here. Uh, and uh, I volunteered for various political campaigns of independents who could run in the Fifth Ward. In those days, we had cumulative voting for the state House of Representatives. So uh, minority candidates could get elected uh, as one of three candidates in the state legislative district. That was abolished by a subsequent change in the Illinois Constitution. But the result was you had a little bit of a viable um, independent political life in the Fifth Ward. And I got into that. I worked for various candidates, rang doorbells, participated in the Independent Voters of Illinois, which was the local vehicle for doing that sort of thing. And after I got out of law school and uh, was a young lawyer, as you say, uh, the opportunity arose to run for public office. And the, the candidate was candidacy was for the a delegate to the Illinois Constitutional Convention of 1970. It had the nice uh, attribute of being a one, a one and done uh, public office. You would, if you were elected, you served that, that project, and then you could go back to whatever else you wanted to do. And uh, I stood as a candidate. I, uh, there were 13 or so candidates in the primary election, nonpartisan, but primary that winnowed the field down to four. And then I want, I was successful in getting into the second, the runoff with four other candidates. Two were selected. I was not. I lost. Uh, I was the third candidate. There were two machine candidates, two independent candidates, and the independents in this state senatorial district had enough votes to elect uh, one out of two of the independents. And so how does that lead to your filing this lawsuit against uh, the party? Well, the lawsuit was filed uh, 
in the fall of 1969, when the, I was a candidate for office, so it was before the results of the election were known. And uh, it was an idea that had been developed by a friend and good, good friend and law school classmate, Dick Johnson, with the help of another good friend and law school classmate, uh, Roger Frost. Uh, and they had developed the idea, primarily Dick, but also Roger, that there was a, a legal theory available to challenge patronage. And the theory was based upon a number of cases that had been decided prior to that time that mainly dealt with ballot access and independent candidates and said, the state can't set a higher bar for signatures for somebody to get on the ballot as an independent than it can to get on the ballot as a Democrat or a Republican. So, and that was based on constitutional principles that there were certain, certain rights to equal access to the electoral system. Uh, Dick Johnson's great contribution was to say that should also apply to the patronage system because the effect of the patronage system is to give a, a tremendous advantage to the incumbents and to allow them to make it uh, darn near impossible for uh, challengers to challenge them. And they do so with government resources, because effectively what they're doing is allocating government jobs to uh, patronage workers in return for those workers giving up their political freedom, which is what it amounts to, and having to work for the candidates selected by the uh, party leaders. We filed the lawsuit in the fall of uh, 1969. Uh, it was immediately, uh, it was assigned on a random allocation system to uh, Abraham Lincoln Maravitz, who had been Richard J. Daley's roommate in Springfield when they were both in the state legislature. And it did not take uh, Judge Maravitz, a very nice man, very amiable, charming gentleman, uh, but a product of the Chicago Democratic machine. It didn't take him long to dismiss the case. And then it went up on appeal. And it stayed there until it was decided uh, in 1970, a year later after the election was history. I had lost the election, as we pointed out in the appeal, by 600 votes, which was um, less than the number of Democratic patronage workers working against me in, uh, in the election. So it is tossed out. It's reinstated upon appeal, right? You said in 1970. And then there was some discussion at that point of what the what should come of that right i mean leading up to the actual 1972 what we now know as the shackman decree or the first shackman decree um talk about that that period and how that 1972 decree came about i will uh, at that time uh, our legal team consisted of dick johnson and roger frost and myself since i was also functioning as a lawyer in the case but it also included an older and much more experienced litigator bob plotkin robert plotkin and uh, Bob was a, a very smart and aggressive litigator. Once the Court of Appeals said, this, this, these guys have a claim here, he served a subpoena on the patronage office of the mayor and said, uh, let's get some discovery. Uh, we want to see your records. Uh, put them on the table. We want to see who you're supporting and what money you're collecting and uh, how you're running the patronage system because we're going to go into court now and we're going to prove how this thing works. And uh, the mayor designated... Uh, an able lawyer and a good friend of his, Peter Fitzpatrick, um, who uh, represented the mayor personally and in these in what became negotiations that went on for a year, a year and a half, in which they basically said, look, we all know there's a patronage system and we know you guys can prove it eventually. So why don't we see if we can reach some agreement? What we're concerned about is what he, he or we started to refer to as unilateral disarmament. This was the Cold War, after all. And his point was, if we're going to start restricting our ability to conduct patronage politics, we want parallel restrictions imposed on the Republicans. And so 
we'll enter into an agreement that that we will no longer engage in um, post-employment, post-hiring political discrimination. I mean, they wouldn't have put it that way, but we'll, we'll agree to a court order that says you can't condition uh, jobs for people who are already government employees upon uh, political support or financial political contributions, but go get an equal number of Republican patronage jobs and bring them in under under the same rule. So that then led to negotiations with the then Republican governor, uh, if I remember correctly, it was Richard Ogilvie, and the Republican uh, attorney general, some of the Republican uh, party chairman in the counties, because DuPage County had a very strong patronage Republican system at that time. And the result was close enough to uh, bilateral restraints or bipartisan restraints on both parties that uh, both the Democrats and Republicans were willing to sign on. And we ended up with uh, what's known as the 1972 Shackman Decree, which dealt only with post-employment matters, didn't deal with hiring on a political basis. And they weren't prepared to agree to that. So the issue of political hiring remained to be litigated. But what that degree said is that once somebody becomes a government employee, they cannot be required to do political work or make political financial contributions in order to maintain, keep their job. Uh, and any form of politically motivated employment action is prohibited. You can't condition overtime on it. You can't condition good job assignments on it. And so, but forth. this is not touching the original issue that we've talked about of how people are getting these jobs in the first place through political means. That remained to be litigated. The first court order dealt with people who are already hired. It was a major step forward. It left open the issue to be litigated of, of public of hiring for public jobs on a patronage basis. That piece of the litigation went forward. It was decided about 1980 in the district court by then the different judge had become the judge presiding, Judge Nicholas Bua. And uh, Judge Bua um, was a judge I'd encountered in um, my practice in the state court when he was a so-called motion judge, and a very good one, handling a slew of motions every morning that would come in. I mention this because <clears throat> while Judge Bua was a state court judge and I was a young lawyer handling litigation in the circuit court of Cook County, I remember a day on which he said to me, my clerk is getting pressured to make financial contributions. I know you've got this lawsuit going. Can you do anything to help my my clerk here so he doesn't have to make these contributions? And I, you know, I talked to him, did whatever I could. Years later, he's appointed to the federal bench. Years later, the case is reassigned to Judge Bua. And this was not a atypical, his reaction was not atypical. Everybody who was anywhere near uh, Illinois politics knew how the patronage system worked. So it wasn't a hard sell to explain to a Judge Bua or later to a Judge Anderson who inherited the case down the road. They all knew how the system worked and it, and they knew what it did to people. Bua knew what it did to his clerk in, in the circuit court of Cook County. The separate question is why weren't the orders obeyed? Why did we end up in the early part of this century, 2005, with um, widespread uh, patronage operations in the city of Chicago and in the state? And the, and the answer is because politicians didn't obey the orders. And the next step of the case, and I'm trying to condense here 50 years of litigation into five minutes, so it's, it's condensed. But the next critical step of the case, by this time, Judge Wayne Anderson was the presiding judge in the U.S. District Court having the case. And uh, when we found out about the hired truck scandal, which you may recall. Yeah, I want to pause here and set this up a little bit. So after the 1972 Shackman Decree, these 
decades are going by throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s, there are these various other steps and court orders that are being taken to gradually expand the scope of this lawsuit. You mentioned an order in 1980 by Judge Bua so that these anti-patronage rules would now apply to hiring as well as post-employment. Um, there are new consent decrees in this case in 1979, 83, this revised court order in 91 that specifies a lot of the restrictions. But as we get into the 21st century, the sort of latter years of the Richard M. Daley administration, a lot of Chicago and Cook County offices are just not really following these court orders, right? Um, but then this lawsuit really kicks into a new gear after the hired trucks patronage scandal of 2004, 05, 06. So walk us through how that all happened. What, what had happened as a result of the patronage litigation that I'd been involved in is that the city and other government agencies had moved their patronage operation to private organizations. Uh, an example would be the Hispanic Democratic Organization. At that time, it was a political organization, but private, but with uh, public employees staffing it, and um, with a patronage operation run, in, run by the director of the city's intergovernmental relations um, department, Robert Sorich, an 11th Ward supporter and ally of uh, the second mayor daily, um, Sorich ran patronage, allocated government jobs to, instead of committeemen, to non-governmental uh, entities like the Hispanic Democratic Organization, and, and on occasion to committeemen and others. And the result was a, a conversion of an older patronage system into a, a somewhat different but still um, functioning new patronage system. The part of the system operated on allocating government contracts to, in one case, for trucking. Instead of having the city's uh, fleet of trucks used to do city business, uh, contracts went in return for bribes to private truckers. The U.S. attorney began a grand jury investigation, and the grand jury investigation led to a series of indictments of Sorich and others uh, for their role in uh, violating the Shackman Decree and forging the, the documents that were used for interviews and uh, coming up with ratings to make sure the people they selected got chosen, not those nominally being selected based on, on merit. It was a merit system in the sense that if you applied for a job that required some knowledge with the city, or or it was just a lottery, did you have a commercial driver's license so you could run a city truck, they would uh, pick their favorites and they would use the mails to transmit uh, false fraudulent certifications of interviews. And that was sufficient to bring a, a federal grand jury proceeding, a federal indictments against Sorich and others who were tried and convicted and went to jail. Sorich, I think, spent four years in prison. And that in turn gave us abundant detail to show widespread violations of the consent decrees. We filed an application to hold the city and the mayor in contempt. Uh, Judge Anderson, uh, granted uh, our motion to appoint a special master, chose someone he was familiar with who had been an employment discrimination specialist at the uh, a federal uh, employment agency, uh, Noelle Brennan, and uh, she became the special master for the city and then interfaced with the city. And now it was a whole different world. Now, instead of relying upon uh, false affidavits filed by public officials that said everything was being done on the up and up, you now had uh, an agent of the federal court appointed by a federal judge with authority to go in and look at every hiring sequence, to sit in on it if she wanted to, or have one of her aides sit in on it and see if it was all on the up and up. This is now the way that it works today with these offices. You have a compliance administrator, right, who is actually meticulously scrutinizing um, 
every single hiring practice, what reforms are being put into place and reporting back to the judge in a court hearing every several months or however on what their progress is. That's accurate. And it reflects the, the uh, tenacious hold that uh, patronage has had on Illinois government, that the only way you can, you can eliminate it is by having um, that kind of highly detailed uh, review and uh, monitoring of government agents, agencies. And you have to have um, people at the head of those agencies the mayor, the president of the county board, the sheriff, who are prepared to say and mean it to their subordinates, uh, guys, we got to run this operation on the up and up. Unless you have that, even with the monitors, it's a tremendous struggle to get the system to work on a fair, free and equitable basis. So everybody has an equal shot at getting jobs and, and nobody gets muscled for political contributions. So a lot of different government offices at this point come under this direct oversight where you have this court-appointed monitor who's keeping really close tabs on the pace of these patronage reforms and regularly reporting back to a judge. These monitors were assigned to the Chicago mayor's office, the Cook County Board President's office, um, you know, Forest Preserve District, Sheriff's office, all these offices that the ones that I just named were eventually able to prove to a judge, hey, no more patronage here. You can get this monitor off of our backs. But that took years and years. So the, the mayor's office didn't shake off this oversight until 2014. Um, the county board president's office didn't until 2018, after more than a decade of this oversight, right? So why does this take so long? Why is it so hard for these offices to make these reforms? It's really the an important question, maybe the most important question that one could ask it in the current status of this, this half a century of litigation. I think there are a couple answers. Uh, a, separate, a couple of separate factors that explain why it's so hard to get reform and why it takes so long and why it costs a lot of money and why you need monitors. One is that the culture of patronage is deeply embedded in Illinois politics. Uh, remember that every manager who's come up through the system and is now managing a city or state agency, almost every one of them has come up through the patronage system since almost all of them are post-2000 uh, appointees, they are children of the patronage system. They got there by patronage. They support patronage. Uh, and for them, the cultural shift is enormous. Number two, if you're going to run an honest employment system, honest in the sense that you're not allowing patronage to control who you hire, who gets promoted, who gets cushy assignments, and who gets crummy assignments, you really have to have a, a full-blown high quality um, human resources program and administrator. You can't run uh, those systems the way they ran traditionally, which were um, uh, without structure because the over overriding controlling factor was politics. You didn't need uh, an honest uh, interview system if interviews didn't matter. You didn't need an honest means of acquiring uh, applications from the public if you weren't hiring from the public. Uh, you didn't need to have standards for jobs if standards didn't really matter. And under the patronage system, that's how it was. Standards didn't matter. Uh, employment histories didn't matter. Qualifications didn't matter. Clout mattered. So when you talk about uh, the task that these consent decrees require in order to, to complete their mission and to, to terminate, it means you have to build largely from scratch um, 
freestanding and, and professional employment departments in each of these governmental agencies. And that's a big, big job. And once you've done it, you've got to train people. And then once you've trained people, you have to have a monitoring system because if it's only if it only exists on paper, it's only worth the paper. And in addition to a monitoring system, you have to have a reporting system. The reporting system has to be transparent. And finally, there has to be sanctions for, for violation. There have to be penalties that people pay if they put their thumb on the scale to hire somebody who comes in with clout and not hire somebody who's qualified. So what you're talking about is building and a human relations system or an employment system from scratch for government agencies that traditionally did not have any that functioned on a legitimate basis. That's why it takes so long. So here we are, it's 2021. We are now 52 years into Shackman v. Cook County Democratic Party et al. There are four government agencies that are still under, uh, that are that are currently named as defendants, correct, in the Shackman case. There is there are three Cook County offices uh, that we'll talk about in a second, but there's also the Illinois governor's office is still under compliance. We've heard some rumblings from the governor's office from um, from Governor Pritzker in the past year or so saying that he thinks they're almost there. They're about ready to get to what we call substantial compliance, the idea that they no longer need to be under this oversight. Um, is is he right about that? Does, does it seem like he's about to break free? Well, he filed a motion asking the judge uh, who's presiding over the case uh, another judge, uh, this is the fifth or sixth federal judge who's had this case, to uh, release him from the decree. Uh, the My side of the case opposed it. And in, in March, the end of March, uh, the judge wrote a 42-page opinion explaining why he didn't think that the governor was right, that he, was, uh, he had come into substantial compliance and uh, denied the motion, but said, uh, keep working on it. And uh, we are working on it, hopefully in cooperation with them. Uh, the other side to get them to the point where we can both go in, plaintiffs and defendants, and ask to uh, ask the court to terminate the decree. But we're not there yet. The governor recently, last week or so, two weeks, filed a, a notice of appeal, and he's asking the court of appeals to overrule the judge and say that the governor has done enough. Uh, bottom line here is that the the question for all of these government agencies that have wanted to get out uh, is: Have they? Um, eliminated the past vestiges of discrimination, and have they put in place a durable remedy? Those are the standards that come out of the U.S. Supreme Court, mainly in school desegregation cases, where there are longstanding consent decrees like we have in our case. The U.S. Supreme Court has said, we need to see two things if we want to, if a defendant wants to end a case like this, an institutional reform case. We need to show, the defendant needs to show, it's defendant's burden, to show that it's eliminated the past practices and then it's got to show that it's also put in place a durable remedy so that the past practices won't start up again as soon as the federal court is out of the picture. We're happy, but really delighted that um, we got to that point with the city, with uh, the county, uh, with the sheriff of Cook County, with the county forest preserve. In each case, we, uh, the plaintiff side joined in the application to the federal court to terminate the, that defendant and, and say he's done or she's done or it's done a good job in building a good structure employment system that will stand the test of time and meets these requirements of uh, eliminating vestiges of past discrimination and having a durable remedy. The governor isn't there yet. Uh, I can go into detail, but uh, the, the issue is fully briefed and argued before the district court and the judge agreed the governor isn't there yet. I hope he gets there soon. We'll work with him to get him there. 
three Cook County offices that are under Shackman, so to speak. Um, I know that you are not so personally involved in the oversight of the Cook County Assessor's Office, but just to sort of briefly explain, this came under um, uh, Shackman oversight in, I believe, 2012. This was under um, former Assessor Berrios, who had a real, um, shall we say, legacy of, of uh, patronage. Um, 2018, Fritz Kage is elected and really says that he wants to put an emphasis on reaching compliance. Um, now it seems like they are pretty deep into this process of making a lot of reforms and, and they seem pretty confident that that maybe within the next even couple months or a year they might be able to um, to lift that. Um, that's just sort of from my own reporting on it. Moving on then, I want to talk about the Cook County Circuit Court Clerk's Office next. Um, Dorothy Brown came under a supplemental relief order in SRO in 2018 for Shackman oversight. My understanding since then is her office has made some pretty substantial reforms, standardizing hiring. Um, now just in the past couple months um, or last year, we had a new clerk elected, Iris Martinez. She has said that she's putting a real emphasis on um, making these reforms and getting out from under the Shackman monitor. Uh, she's now been in that office for coming up on six months. What does your read so far of that office's progress? Well, I think uh, to, to use an old uh, hackneyed phrase, the jury is a little bit out on Clerk Martinez. Uh, I think she means to do what needs to be done. I think she understands that reform comes from the top. You have to have a motivated leader, as we had with the, the city and the county and the sheriff's office. So I, I, I treat her at, at face value and uh, applaud her for the steps she's taken. Uh, there are still a lot. There is still a lot to do, and uh, we'll work with her to try and get her from where she is now, which is on the road to compliance, uh, meeting the standards I described to get there. And then we hope to be able to join a, a joint application to terminate as to, as to that office, as we do with every office. Finally, let's talk about Cook County Clerk Karen Yarbrough. And I just want to set this up with a little bit of background here. In 2019, the clerk's office was getting ready to absorb the Cook County Recorder of Deeds office, which had been under its own Shackman Monitor since 2010. Um, and Karen Yarborough was the recorder of deeds for, for six years of that, from 2012 to 2018. And then as the this merger or assumption of duties was being planned, there was sort of this open question of what happens with the clerk's office. Is the clerk's office going to come under oversight? Is, it, is the Shackman monitor over recorder of deeds just going to dissolve? And then in September 2019, as these discussions are happening, you come in with a legal motion saying, wait a minute, the clerk's office has its own problems. And you filed for or moved for there to be um, a special master, as, as you put it, overseeing the clerk's office. Um, so, and, and the judge, um, Sidney Schenkier, who's since retired, agreed and has assigned a compliance administrator to oversee the clerk's office. Um, let's talk about the past year or so since that happened. Uh, has there been progress? Has, has Clerk Yarbrough been reforming, overhauling, getting on the road to, to compliance, as you put it? I think not. I think uh, she's been a very reluctant uh, participant in reform. Um, you didn't mention, but I think you're, you're aware that she had been the recorder of deeds before she became county clerk. The recorder of deeds had been under a consent decree in the Shackman case from the time she took over. And uh, it was a very uh, troubled uh, relationship we had with her, uh, troubled because she really didn't buy into uh, patronage reform. She is also the committee woman of Proviso Township. She in, in, 
involved herself in hiring people from Proviso Township to work in the Recorder of Deeds office. She sought to move many of them over to the clerk of Cook County when she became clerk of Cook County. We had to file contempt motions against her, not against her, but against some of her colleagues, the people who worked for her while she was recorder of deeds. Uh, unfortunately, this is an example of the principle that if there isn't buy-in from the top, then there isn't progress at the operational level in getting the office in good shape. So the, the problems that we encountered when she became clerk of the circuit, uh, clerk of the of Cook County <clears throat> were that she, she did a couple of kind of classic uh, patronage type uh, maneuvers. One is she took existing career people who she wanted to get rid of, who were senior people, good jobs, high paying jobs. And she started moving them around the county, some having to drive 20, 30, 40 miles from home to serve a remote county location where her, she had an office when there was no reason for it. And when she wasn't doing that for a couple of supervisors who uh, were loyalists to her. Uh, second, she started filling exempt positions. We haven't talked about exempt positions, but in every office, some positions are exempt from these rules because their policy making are highly confidential. And she started filling those positions without compliance with the court order that said, you've got to tell the court what you're doing with these jobs. And they have to really be exempt jobs. They can't just be made up exempt jobs to avoid the rules on merit hiring. So that led to us filing a motion with the court saying, we need some relief here. This uh, office holder is not complying with the consent decrees. Uh, discovery took place. Uh, depositions were taken. Documents were produced. A three-day hearing occurred. Uh, Judge Schenker uh, found that she was indeed shuffling people around to put pressure on some to resign. There was no other apparent reason. And that she was filling jobs without complying with the exempt jobs, without the requirement of getting approval from the court that those were really exempt jobs. And he said the solution which we supported was to appoint a monitor for her office using the same monitor who had monitored her office as recorder of deeds. And that's what he did. Uh, the clerk, uh, Ms. Yarbrough, took an appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Uh, just this spring, the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit affirmed. It said um, uh, these examples of patronage abuse were adequately proven. The district court adequately uh, uh, evaluated the conduct and acted properly in appointing a, uh, a monitor to monitor that office. My message to uh, Clerk Yarborough would be that uh, when she begins to work seriously, uh, to commit herself seriously to ending patronage practices in her office, uh, we will be the first to work with her and congratulate her and support her in getting there. And we hope she gets the message and we hope she moves in the right direction because um, Ending federal court oversight, which she dearly wants to do, rests entirely in her hands. Clerk Yarbrough's response, it seems through this whole process, has been saying that this level of scrutiny is, is unfair, it's inconsistently applied. She says that in the 28 years that David Orr held that role, um, he never had to worry about, you know, exempt positions versus non-exempt positions and was never put under the same magnifying glass. Her legal team filed a legal response to the court pretty recently, I want to say in February, basically saying, you know, get off our backs. We're trying the best that we can. And, and you're trying to harp on these tiny little mistakes and saying that it's evidence of some kind of, um, you know, bigger issue going on. I mean, what, what do you, what do you have to say to that? Well, uh, from time to time you hear from, uh, Clerk Yarbrough, that uh, somehow uh, there's some 
personal animus involved. Uh, couldn't be farther from the truth. I don't know the lady. I have not had any prior dealings with her outside the context of her being recorder of deeds and now a clerk of court. I get along well with the other defendants that uh, have been involved in this case, with the exception of the governor, with whom I've had no personal contact, but I've had contact with uh, Manuel and Preckwinkle and uh, Sheriff Dart. Um, no issues uh, other than issues on the merits. How do we get from where we are now to where we want to be? Uh, moreover, the arguments that you've just described that Yarborough has made, she presented them to the district court and she presented them to the Court of Appeals and she lost. The court didn't buy it and it didn't buy it because uh, the, the arguments are not meritorious. The reason proceedings were initiated against uh, Clerk Yarborough and not against David Orr, her predecessor, is because Orr didn't shift people around in order to make people resign. Uh, and he didn't... Uh, engage in uh, political solicitations. And he didn't have a, a David Orr committeeman position that he was using to try to fill people in his public office with people from his political organization. We got complaints after she took over. We, we didn't go looking for them. We got complaints from third parties who said, here's what she's doing in the clerk's office. You guys have this consent decree. Do something about it. We did. So the last question, I want to sort of bring everything back to the system that you were describing in the very beginning of quid pro quo and come back to this question of I mean, why, why go through all of this? Why spend more than a half century on this? You know, I was looking through some budget documents on the county side and found that Cook County paid just during the 10 year course of the recorder of deeds oversight, 2010 to 2020, almost three and a half million dollars just to the compliance administrator. That's a fraction of all of the legal fees that it takes to pay for the entire lawsuit to say nothing of the incalculable human cost of labor and time and energy that it takes for all of these exhaustive trainings and rewriting and writing these employment plans. Um, I've asked you this question before, but I mean, simply why is it all worth it? Well, uh, a couple of answers, a couple of reasons it's why all worth it. Uh, one is that we're not talking just about the right of independent candidates and voters or non-party supported candidates and voters to a fair chance in the election process, although we are talking about that. Uh, indeed, look at city government today compared to the way it was under Richard J. Daley 50 years ago. That was a one-party state. Right now, we've got a, a diverse, um, volatile, um, interesting city council made up of different groups, not dominated by any one faction, with ethnic groups well represented, representing the interests of their constituents. We've got a robust, functioning democracy in city government in Chicago. We didn't have that 50 years ago. So that's answer number one. It's a price you pay for, for democracy, for political freedom, for not having a one-party state in which the, the wealth of the government and the employment of the government is used to benefit one faction. So that's one part. Another part is from the public employee point of view. There are tens of thousands of people who work for the county and the city. They are voters and they are citizens, and they have the right to exercise their own political independence and judgment about who they want to support, whether they want to work in precincts or not, and whether they, they want to simply do their job, government job and not be muscled for political contributions or political work. That's political freedom 101, and that's worth fighting about. That's worth pressing for. So I think when you look at it from either of those two points, that explains it, but there's a third point, and that's economic. Patronage is enormously wasteful of public resources. Years ago, the 
when patronage was in bloom in Chicago under Richard J. Daly, the Chicago Tribune would periodically do studies of the cost of governmental services in one place or another. The one I remember most clearly is that Chicago had a patronage system and Milwaukee did not. Chicago had a particular kind of street light with a certain street light bulb in it. The same street light and light bulb existed in Milwaukee. It cost $2.50 to change that light bulb in Milwaukee. It cost $13 to change it in Chicago. That was a product of a patronage system that didn't run for efficiency. It ran to benefit political bosses. So sure, uh, the public is entitled to have uh, uh, efficiency and it's entitled to ask questions about whether reform is costing money, uh, but it needs to focus, anybody talking about this needs to focus on the cost of not doing the reforms. And they're much greater than the really quite modest costs of uh, monitoring government offices and encouraging them to do what they should be doing anyway, which is to have a honest, uh, efficient, uh, straightforward human relations system that hires people uh, for non-exempt jobs based on their merits, not based on politics. Michael Shackman, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really enlightening. Happy to do it. So long. Thanks again to Michael Shackman for speaking with us. Shackman et al. v. Democratic Organization of Cook County et al. continues on. The case is now being overseen by the Honorable U.S. District Court Judge Edmund Chang. He is the seventh judge who has presided over this case since it was originally brought in 1969. The next open court hearing in the Shackman case is scheduled with Clerk Yarborough's office for this Thursday, May 27th at 10 a.m. It will be open to the public. This episode was produced and edited by me, Alex Nitkin. We'll be back with another episode of the Cloudcast in two weeks.